This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics Where Speech Isn't Violence, Tolerance Isn't Love, and Disagreement Isn't Hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. I know it has been a while since we did a show, and I do apologize for that. We've had insane levels of technology issues. We're actually still having them. I still haven't been able to completely rectify them. We're working on that right now. So we're actually doing something different. Normally when I do these episodes, I'm doing it live. Almost every time, with a handful of rare exceptions, if you see me on the air, I am doing it live as you're watching it. I can't do that right now because we've had so many technology issues. I've been in communication with the developers on two different softwares that I'm using because they're having some issues communicating with each other. I won't bore you with all the technical details, but suffice it to say, we're working on it. We're hoping to be ready for our big debate schedule uh, coverage for the, the final presidential debate, which is coming up on Thursday. We think that we're going to be able to be able to pull that off, even if the technology isn't fixed by then. We've kind of figured out a workaround. So I am working very diligently on that. I do apologize to everybody. I'm sorry that we haven't been able to get more content out there to you in the past several days. Believe me, if I knew that this was going to unleash the tirade of software issues that we are having I would have never done these updates and I would have just stuck with what we had, but unfortunately that ship has already sailed. There's really nothing we can do about it at this point and hopefully we can get all those issues rectified. But it is important that we get together and talk and, and get together and be able to converse with one another about what's going on because this is, it's go time. I mean, it, we have come right down to the wire when it comes to this stuff, and so there is a lot going on, and one of the things that I wanted to bring up, because of course local news does always take precedence here, it turns out just a couple of days ago, this was last week after our most recent show, that Doug Jones responded to a number of questions on a questionnaire that was sent to him by our own hometown paper, the Montgomery Advertiser, so I wanted to go ahead and go through that, because to be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time on this. I have not spent a lot of time on the Doug Jones and Tuberville race because it's basically a done deal. And I don't want to give anybody some kind of false overconfidence or anything like that. I, I, get, I get that. But Doug Jones has already been in communication with Joe Biden. If Joe Biden wins the presidency, that he believes that he thinks that that's going to happen. And so he is being looked at and apparently is the front runner to be the attorney general for the Democrats. And I have said this for a long time, and I can't take full credit for it because Dale Jackson, my counterpart up in Huntsville, is actually the one that gave me the idea, and I always try to give credit where credit is due. So Dale Jackson brought this up a long time ago. I said about two years ago that Doug Jones had completely given up on even trying to get elected in the state of Alabama, and he's just going to do what he wants to do. But Dale Jackson added something that I think made sense and, and made everything sort of when you understand this part of it, every other part of the puzzle tends to fall into place. And when that happens, normally that is the correct answer. When you come up with a solution or you come up with an explanation that makes all the things a person is doing suddenly make sense, not always, but about 99% of the time, that's their motivation, that's the reason that they're doing it. And what he brought up was that Doug Jones was actually vying for a top spot either in a Democrat administration 
or somewhere like with a big national job in the DNC. And that makes sense, right? I mean, that would be something that makes sense to us because Doug Jones is a political animal. He is a the, uh, kind of a mover and shaker and somebody that wants to move up, and he knows that the odds of him getting reelected to a statewide office in the reddest state in the country is virtually impossible. So impossible, in fact, that even though Democrats were pouring money into the Jones campaign early on, they're not anymore. Even the DNC and the Democrats have basically given up on it. I said Doug Jones gave up on a uh, up on it about two-ish years ago. I remember that when he made a a very pro-abortion vote, I was like, "Yeah, Doug Jones has probably stopped even trying to get reelected in Alabama." And then when he reacted the way he did to the Kavanaugh hearing, I was like, "Okay, Doug Jones knows he's got no chance. There's no reason that he would go for this, especially on top of all the abortion stuff, if he wants to get reelected." in the state of Alabama, and it turns out that it seems that that is the case. And that actually is the primary topic of discussion in this questionnaire that was issued to him by the Montgomery Advertiser. So we'll go ahead and read some of these and go through them piece by piece. So this is the question that they issue. Do you believe a woman has a right to an abortion? And Jones' response, there are deep disagreements on the issue of abortion, and I respect those who oppose abortion for religious or personal reasons. See, that's how you know that he's about to say something horrible. Is like, well, I really respect those that are against it. However, I disagree with everything that they're saying. <laughs> That's kind of the, uh, they're trying to cushion the blow there when they do that. And then he goes on to say, but while some candidates might deny the complexity of this issue and appeal to folks for in a politically self-serving way that ignores the facts, this issue is rarely so simple for those who face the gut-wrenching situation. It's not that complex. It's actually very simple. It's one of the simplest laws in the world. You don't have the right to kill another person. Period. End of discussion. You cannot kill a baby. It's not something you have a right to do. It's not complex. It doesn't matter the situations or the circumstances surrounding it. You don't have the right to kill your child. It's a very, very simple issue. And I don't have any political ambitions. I'm not going to be running for office anytime in the future. I have no reason to, to say that other than it's what I really believe. It is an incredibly simplistic issue. And that doesn't always mean that it's easy. That doesn't always mean that the answers are answers that you like. But it is simple. It's not complex. That's one thing that is a, a misnomer here. And, and this is very, very common of people trying to make especially moral arguments that are unpopular or that, that make certain people feel uncomfortable, they always try to cloak it in this sort of shroud of ambiguity. They try to make it into a gray issue when it's a very black and white issue. And the reason that they do that is because they feel as though that if they make the issue gray enough and if they make it sticky and real complicated and complex, then it makes them look a lot less like a baby killer. It makes that seem a lot less cruel and harsh and evil if they can be like, well, it's super complicated and it's difficult. Even in media, even when you're looking at fictitious stories in comic books, you'll notice that villains do this all the time. They try to muddy the water and make it not so crystal clear what's right and what's wrong, but very often right and wrong is pretty clear. 
there's some times where it may not necessarily be, or, or times where you have to really think through a problem, but abortion's not one of them. We're talking about a human life, a baby. And there could be nothing in the world simpler than it is evil to kill a baby. That's pretty darn straightforward. And so they try to do this, and here's the way that you can tell that this is a completely non-sequitur, I mean, I mean it, just a complete bullcrap answer. And this is the thing that you can do with virtually every argument when it comes to abortion. Apply exactly the same logic to a toddler. And then all of a sudden people can see how crazy it sounds. And by the way, the fact that it automatically sounds crazy is usually the thing that gives people pause. Because if you're talking to somebody that's pro-abortion and say, okay, well then why is it not all right to do exactly the same thing to, say, a two- or three-year-old? And then they freak out. It's like, no, that's horrible. Yeah, but it's also horrible for the baby. That's the point. It's an extreme example because the example works. It reveals and sheds light on this dark act of abortion and shows you why there should be legal, or sorry, legal, there should be legal clarity as well, but I meant moral clarity. Let, let's reread Joan's answer and imagine that he's talking about a toddler. There are deep disagreements on the issue of toddler killing, and I respect those who oppose toddler killing for religious or personal reasons. But while some candidates might deny the complexity of toddler killing and appeal to folks in a politically self-serving way that ignores facts, this issue is rarely so simple for those who have this gut-riching situation. You see, you could apply it to it just as easily, and when you do apply that, it shows how evil and reprehensible and wicked that it actually is. But to somebody that understands that you're dealing with a human life, it sounds just as bad the first way as it did when I added toddler killing and replaced abortion with that. See, to us, it sounds exactly the same. There's no difference. And that's because there's no difference in the value of a baby that has just been born and a baby that is still in the womb and has yet to be born. That, that's the same value of a human life. And then Jones continues on here. However, I respect the dignity and rights of women and their ability to make decisions about their health and their body. Well, it's not your body, but okay. I do not believe that you can simply discuss abortion without also discussing women's health and the various stages of pregnancy. I know of no one who is, he's putting this in quotation marks, I'm not adding the quotation marks, for abortion. And I believe Alabamians have more in common on this issue than people realize. I've always maintained that abortion is a deeply personal decision between a woman and her health care provider and her faith and have agreed with the U.S. Supreme Court decision and have affirmed that safe, legal, uh, safe and legal access to abortion is a woman's constitutional right, at least through the early stages of pregnancy. All right, so a couple things that I want to bring up here really quick. When he says that there's nobody that's for abortion... Has Jones been living under a rock for the past, oh, I don't know, about 20 years? There was a time, because it was politically feasible, that Democrats pretty much all, whether they actually believed it or not, they all parroted the talking point that we just want abortions to be safe, legal, and rare. We're not for abortion. We want less abortion. We just think that you ought to have the right to do that if you decide that you have to make that decision. Now, 
I still firmly believe that most of them were full of crap when they said that, because they would give lip service to being against elective abortions, but then they also didn't want to outlaw elective abortions. So I don't think that they were sincere, at least for most of them. There may have been some that were. But the vast majority of Democrats were not sincere in that, but they at least paid lip service to it. In the past 20 years, and especially the past 10 years, that has just not been the case. When you've got the CEO of Planned Parenthood going on Twitter with the hashtag ShoutYourAbortion, and there is a myriad, thousands upon thousands of women coming out and bragging about abortions, when you have people like Lena Dun uh, Dunham, who comes out a famous Hollywood actress, and talks about, well, I haven't had an abortion yet, but I really wish that I had. They see abortion as a badge of honor. It is something they covet. They specifically want to get pregnant just so they can have abortions. That's how twisted and sick these people are. There was a time where there was at least a sentiment and at least the illusion of, and I think it was sincere probably for some Democrats, but there was at least the illusion that what Doug Jones is talking about there, that nobody's actually for abortion was more or less true, or at least true based on the words of the people that were saying them. Now they're not even doing that. The veil has completely come off. There are people that are proud of their abortion, saying that there should be no shame in abortion. Planned Parenthood has said this over and over again, that women should feel absolutely no shame whatsoever for getting an abortion at any time for any reason. We could go on and on about this all night, but the picture that Doug Jones is saying that, well, there's nobody that's really for abortion... Uh, yeah, there is. There's a multi-million dollar corporation that is based off of this. There are people making millions of dollars. There's lots of people that are very for abortion, Doug Jones. To say otherwise is just to live in a fantasy world. And I will say this, that yes, abortion on demand, in other words, abortion at any time for any reason, that is significantly worse in actuality than Doug Jones's official position. And by that, I mean the position that he holds and that his campaign voices when they ask if he's for abortion. He says, well, I'm not for late-term abortion, that kind of thing. Yes, I totally understand that late-term abortion is worse than Doug Jones' opinion. From a moral standpoint, though, there's really no difference in killing the baby a week after conception and a week before birth. From a moral perspective, there's no difference in that whatsoever. And here's the thing about this. Even though I think that abortion on demand is worse just because obviously you have more, not significantly more, I think after post-20-week abortions only constitute about 1 1.3, 1.5% of all abortions, so it's a, it's a very small minority of abortions. But if we were to look at late-term abortions, the people that are against abortion completely like me, that birth begins at conception, we're consistent. But you know who else is consistent? the people that are for abortion on demand at any time. Now, they're insane, but even though I think that their policy is, in as, as a matter of functionality, worse than Jones' official position, theirs is the more consistent one. They think that it's just not a human until it comes through the birth canal. I don't understand why the magic journey eight inches down the birth canal suddenly conveys through some kind of weird existential force, human, sh human, uh, sh human ship, human, hu I don't even know how you would say that. Personhood, I guess, is the better way to say it. That you have the value of a human being once you have gone the short journey eight inches down the birth canal. 
I don't really understand why that is the case, but you have to admit the abortion-on-demand people are significantly more consistent than the people that hold Doug Jones' position that, well, it is a human at some point, and its life is valuable at some point, but it's not at conception. Well, that's a fuzzy line. If it's viability, then viability moves all the time. There's a myriad of reasons why that position really doesn't make any sense and, and isn't very consistent at all. As much as I revile the abortion-on-demand people, their position is, at the very least, more consistent than Doug Jones's. And you remember in February, and this is the reason that I hedged my language when I said Doug Jones' official position, because there's a difference in Doug Jones's official position and what he actually does. Because you may remember that about two years ago, there was a bill that came up in the Senate where it was going to protect and, and set a federal protection because this happened and coincided with New York and passing a law that made basically abortion on demand anytime for any reason. Uh, there was some technicalities that made it not for any reason, but really it could be for any reason. Basically, you just had to find a pro-abortion doctor that would say, yeah, she can have an abortion. That was the only restriction that they had left. And in reaction to that law, Congress, the Republican-controlled Senate, did put out a proposal for a law that would ban all abortion nationwide for children older than the age of 20 weeks. So in other words, yes, it's a very tiny minority, but those that were going to have an abortion after 20 weeks, which is about 1.3% of all abortions in America, that would be illegal nationwide. And Doug Jones voted no. Doug Jones voted against that restriction. And so Doug Jones can go out and say that he is against late-term abortions, but when it came time to vote on whether that should be restricted or available to women that want to kill their kids after 20 weeks, Doug Jones goes, nope, no restrictions, I'm voting no. There is a big difference in words and actions. By the way, along those same lines, just today, AL.com came out with a fact check on one of Tommy Tuberville's ads. And to be fair, one of the claims that Tommy Tuberville said in this ad is at the very least exaggerated. And that was the first claim that he makes in this ad that they fact check. I won't go through it all because that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But the second one is basically the claim that Doug Jones is for abortion on demand. And they rated it false because the official position of the Doug Jones camp is what I just articulated, that he is against late-term abortions. So they took Doug Jones at his word. Let's not do any investigation. Let's not look at his voting record and see what he actually votes for. Let's just go with what the campaign says that Doug Jones is for. So they fact-check Tommy Tuberville, but they just take Doug Jones at his word when he says, oh, I'm against late-term abortions. Oh, well, he must be against late-term abortions. Let's just ignore the fact that he has multiple times, a couple of years ago and then this February when the bill was brought up again, had the opportunity to vote to restrict late-term abortions, and Doug Jones, again, voted no. Actions speak louder than words. This is from the Gutmuncher Institute, which is a pro-abortion advocacy group. And this is under reasons for abortion. They were looking at a study of the different reasons that women sought out an abortion. So let's read here. Women also cited possible problems affecting the health of the fetus or concerns about their own health 
13 and 12 percent, respectively. Respondents wrote a number of specific health reasons from chronic or debilitating conditions such as cancer or cystic fibrosis to pregnancy-specific concerns such as gestational diabetes and morning sickness. So out of all the abortions in America, all the ones that take place, there were only 12 to 13% of all abortions that took place because of the woman's health. See, Doug Jones wants to, again, try to cast it in this moral gray area, but the vast majority of abortions just take place because the woman doesn't want to be pregnant anymore. We're talking about north of 85% of all abortions being something that has nothing to do with the woman's health, nothing to do with the woman's safety, none of that. And Doug Jones always tries to throw to that because it does register some, and not completely undeserved, sympathy or compassion for the woman that may be stuck in a situation where there is some kind of health concern. But there's a couple things I want you to note about that. Even amongst that 12 or 13%, notice it was health concerns, not issues. So the 12 or 13%, it's not women that are having health complications, it's just women that might potentially have health complications down the road at some point. So the woman could be completely healthy, and she just says, well, I have health concerns. I might develop gestational diabetes. I might get cancer. I might at some point have some kind of physical pain or discomfort, which I mean, if you're carrying it a term, you're going to have a lot of that. But I might have some kind of health issue on down the road that causes health problems. These aren't women that have health issues. These are women that are just concerned about health issues and factored that in as a part of their decision to kill their child. Now, I'm sure that there is some part of that percentage that they legitimately do have health issues. But that's not a requirement. And so if you were to remove elective abortions, you wouldn't just get rid of the 87-ish percent that health wasn't even a concern for the women that decided to do it. You would actually wind up removing an even larger percentage of that because most of the women don't actually have health issues. They're just concerned that health issues might show up at some point. And by the way, you also have to notice that included in some of the health excuses that the women could say are concerns, it could also just be like anxiety. You know, they're anxious about being a mother, which, I mean, yeah, that's legitimate. You should always be a little bit anxious about being a parent. That, that's a, a really big responsibility, and so everybody that goes through parenthood is having some anxiety about that, I'm sure. That would be, it would almost be unhealthy to not have at least a little bit of that. But they could cite just about anything as a health concern and fall into this category. And even with this massive broad thing where they're not even checking whether or not the woman actually has a health issue, they still only found about 12 to 13% of women were actually citing health issues as the reason for going after these abortions. And so this is the reason that whenever I'm talking to somebody that is pro-abortion, I always make sure to ask this question, well, would you be for getting rid of elective abortions, and inevitably their answer is always no. Well, then that's not that's a non-issue. Then talking about women's health and that kind of thing, then that's a waste of time because you're not for it because of that. That just happens to be a convenient argument that you use to justify the other 87% of abortions that you want just because women want to have them. 
So don't come to me with an argument about women's health unless you are willing to get rid of the, at the very least, at the bare minimum, 87% of abortions in this country that even might be related to a woman's health. If you're not going to get rid of all the elective abortions, then you can't prattle on to me about being concerned about women's health. Because as much as I am, you know, have absolutely absolute moral clarity that abortion is an evil that needs to be gotten rid of, if somebody came to me with a bill and I were a lawmaker and said, hey, would you vote for this bill that gets rid of all the abortions that are elective? I'd say, yeah, sure. I don't think it goes far enough. I'm going to continue the fight even after it gets passed, if it was to wind up to pass. But yeah, I'd be on board with that. Doug Jones isn't going to do that because Doug Jones wants abortion on demand. He wants elective abortions. And so that's the reason that this whole answer is completely worthless. It's just hiding his true intens uh, intentions. But he is asked a few other things. Uh, for starters, they ask, what restrictions, if any, do you support on abortion? Does a woman have a right to abortion in the case of a medical emergency or a pregnancy caused by sexual assault? Jones, your question is essentially the state's existing law, which allows for an abortion in the case of medical emergency or a pregnancy caused by sexual assault, which I support. I oppose late-term abortions, which are extremely rare, except for instances of rape or uh, incest or when life and the health of the mother is in jeopardy. I was once one of only three Democrats to vote for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which mandates that a baby born alive during abortion must be afforded the same degree of care that would apply to any other child delivered at the same gestational stage. I also support the Hyde Amendment, which prevents federal funds from being used for abortions except in cases of rape, incest, and endangerment of the life of the mother. Given the nature of false attacks that have been leveled against me, let me repeat for your readers the truth. I am not in favor of late-term abortions, and I am not in favor of using taxpayer dollars to fund abortions. Well, if you're not for them, why did you vote against banning them? We're going back to the same question here. If you're so against late-term abortions, you had the opportunity multiple times to vote for a bill that would have outlawed late-term abortions, and you couldn't even get on board with that. So that's why I'm having a really hard time buying this thing that you're trying to tell people that you're against late-term abortions, you're against elective abortions, because when given the opportunity to do something about that, you say no. In the spirit of fairness, though, because I, I want to be fair even to people that I don't necessarily like or are my political adversaries, Doug Jones is correct. He is one of only three Democrats that voted in favor of the Born Alive bill that would protect babies that are born prematurely or for a botched abortion and saying, well, you can't kill those children. Now, that's to Jones' credit, and I give him full credit for it. But here's the thing I do want to impress upon everybody within the sound of my voice. That's a real, real low bar to clear. I mean, is it good that Doug Jones supported that? Yeah. Kudos for him on that. But not killing children that have already been born, that's about as low as the bar can possibly get. Also supporting the Hyde Amendment, thinking that a person shouldn't have their tax dollars taken from them, have under penalty of law, you have to pay taxes, and have that money turn around and fund a practice as evil as abortion, which is the same as if back in the 
early 1800s or late 1700s, you had taken taxpayer dollars to fund slave labor, for example. Just like tax dollars shouldn't have been used for that, tax dollars should not be used for this. So, yeah, kudos to Doug Jones on those two things. He's never had any opportunity to actually support the Hyde Amendment or to vote against it, I guess. That's not really a thing that happened while he was there. But, you know, I understand what he's saying there, and so we'll just give him the benefit of the doubt on that. And to his credit, he did vote for the Born Alive law. But that's a super, super low bar to clear. Not killing children that have already been born, that's not really a feather to hang in your cap. I mean, yes, it's good that you have it, but let's not treat it like it's some kind of golden prize that you can hold out in front of everybody and see how pro-life I am. It's like, well, you're only talking about protecting kids that have already been born. Not real impressive. Not something that proves how pro-life or moderate you are when it comes to the issue of abortion. So this same questionnaire continues on. <clears throat> the next question that is asked, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court is widely viewed as a proxy fight over Roe v. Wade. Would you support an otherwise qualified Supreme Court nominee who does not share your views on abortion, and why or why not? Now, before I even get into this, this is going to be a dodge. Like, you know, you can feel it coming too. I know, it's not just me. This is going to be a dodge. The question attempts to elicit an answer. <laughs> See, you can already tell. He's, he's going into, this is why I'm not going to answer this question. The question attempts to elicit an answer through the back door about a nominee of whom I made my position known before she was nominated. As a member of the Supreme Court bar and a lawyer who has worked both as a prosecutor and defense attorney, I am deeply concerned about the future independence and credibility of our judicial branch of government. We must protect it as a trusted arbiter of justice, free from judicial activism, Mitch McConnell's move to rush the confirmation of this nominee may very well cause irreparable harm to the confidence that the American people should have in the independence of the Supreme Court. I, <clears throat> I have said that I will consider the record and character of President Trump's nominee should he win re-election, but that I would not vote to confirm the nominee before the election. Thousands of people have already cast their ballot, and they ought to be able to have a voice in who picks the Supreme Court justice. There's too much at stake, especially when it comes to the health care of uh, our health care and protecting folks with pre-existing conditions to ignore the will of the American people in this process. Okay, why would this call the integrity of the court into question? Why? You're, you're going to have to do some explaining there, Senator Jones, because there's no reason on its surface to believe that the court would somehow have its reputation ruined because of the nomination of a Supreme Court justice by a duly elected president and then confirmed by a duly elected Senate. Why would that call the legitimacy of the court into question? You're, you're going to have to go a little further than just say, well, it would. That's not proof. That's a claim. That's not an argument. Arguments have supporting evidence. That's just a claim. And so I'm going to need more to go on if that's going to be your position. But also, keep this in mind, too. Barrett was nominated on September the 26th. That's when President Trump announced that she was going to be the nominee. That is 38 days before the election. 
and 116 days before Inauguration Day, saying that the American people ought to have a voice in who sits on the Supreme Court. Well, they, they did. The American people voted to elect President Donald Trump in 2016. They didn't vote for him to be the president from 2016 to, oh, let's say like June-ish in 2020. No, he's the president for a full four years, just like President Obama was the president for a full four years. And then in 2018, they actually increased the majority of the Senate to have more Republican votes to be able to confirm Supreme Court justices. So the American people have already spoken. Now, after Inauguration Day, 116 days from the day that Amy Coney Barrett was nominated, then you would be correct. Then President Trump has no right to nominate somebody after that. He can't do that anymore. He won't be president. And there will be several senators that are no longer senators at that point. But for right now, they're not doing anything that would call, the, call into question the integrity of the court. This is the length of time each Supreme Court justice has had between the time that they are nominated and the time that their vote on confirmation is. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to ever serve on the Supreme Court, she was confirmed in just 33 days. And then you've got Justice Ginsburg, who was a wildly controversial figure and an attorney for the uh, American Civil Liberties Union. It only took 42 days for her to get through. And by the way, she was confirmed with an overwhelming majority. In fact, I think her vote was 97 to 0, if I'm not mistaken. So she was basically unanimously confirmed. And so you're looking at all of these, and there's some that are longer. You've got, for example, Justice Kavanaugh in the circus that that was that took 88 days. You've got uh, Bob Bork in the circus that that turned into, 108 days. By the way, do you notice something? Thomas took 99 do you notice that it's primarily, not exclusively, but primarily Republican nominees that have the longest times? Now, Kagan's a little bit longer, granted, and she was appointed by Obama. But do you notice that it tends to be the Republican nominees that have the longest ones? And that's normally because the Democrats try to do character assassination. There's a reason it's called borking because of what the Democrats did to Justice Bork or not Justice Bork, Judge Bork, because he never actually became a justice. You notice that there is a pattern going on there, and my point in all of this is, these are the times that people voted for a Supreme Court justice, that that process went through, that president, the, the, whoever the president was, nominated them, the Senate confirmed it, and this has all happened in significantly more time or less time We've got both ends of the spectrum here. We have 38 days between now and the election, and there's no rule that says it has to be done between now and the election. Even if, let's say, the election happens and President Biden is the president-elect, well, guess what? It's still 116 days of President Trump. He'll be lame duck, he'll be on his way out, but he can still appoint and, and nominate Supreme Court justices. That's still his prerogative. He is still president up until that point. Now, I understand they want to get it done before the election, and as Ted Cruz has talked about, it's important that we get a ninth judge on the election so that if there is any dispute over the results of the election, we have a full nine-justice Supreme Court to be able to hash that out. But my point in all of that is, he's acting as though this is somehow unconstitutional or it calls into question the integrity of the court. No, there's justices that have been confirmed in less time than there is between the nomination of Judge Barrett and her confirmation. 
but he continues on. In addition to the healthcare-related matters, I also believe that we should provide incentives for foster care and adoption. Okay, that I could be on board with, depending on how you do it. I am a co-sponsor of the Foster Care Credit Act, which ensures that financial reasons do not prevent loving families from opening their homes to foster children, and the Adoption Opportunities Act, which would reduce barriers to adoption and strengthen pre- and post-adoption services in Alabama. Now, I can get on board with most of this stuff. If it were Caleb Cockwood's world and he was the one setting everything, I would just favor a flat tax so that there are no tax incentives. But yeah, I would vote for something like that. There is some common ground here. And so even though I wind up disagreeing with like 98% of what Doug Jones said in this questionnaire, I did want to point to some area that I think that there is at least some level of agreement. And then he continues on in the same answer. Finally, we have to have a candid conversation about education regarding contraception and birth control. Too many people in this state want to stand on a moral soapbox about this issue and ignore the fact that human beings act in certain ways that are often irresponsible and uninformed. I believe that better education and easier and cheaper access to contraception would reduce unwanted pregnancies. Okay, so he's contradicting himself here. Because if people always act in irresponsible, or maybe not always, because he says often, but if people act in irresponsible or uninformed ways, how would an education program help? If we're supposed to just accept the fact that people usually act in irresponsible ways, which, by the way, I agree with, but why would an education program help with that in the first place? If that's just human nature then I don't understand why an education program would be curtailing that. That doesn't make any sense. And another thing that's important to remember as well, yes, human beings do tend to act irresponsibly, but they tend to act even more irresponsibly when there are no consequences to their actions. One of the things that we actually saw in Texas, there were a whole bunch of people in Texas that were decrying a new Texas law that came out, I want to say like six or seven years ago, where they were actually scaling back any kind of payments for uh, getting an abortion or birth control, and they actually scaled that back, and it wound up closing a whole bunch of Planned Parenthood clinics. And they were saying, well, you know what's going to happen? This is actually going to cause an increase in unplanned pregnancies because they're scaling back funding for people to get free birth control, that kind of thing. You know what happened? Unplanned pregnancies actually went down. It turns out when people think, oh, there might be consequences and I might have to pay a price for my irresponsible behavior, maybe I shouldn't engage in that behavior. Does it work for everybody? No. Some people are going to act irresponsibly, just like Doug Jones correctly asserts here. But the point is, when you do give people responsibility and they have to take responsibility for the things that they have done, majority of them, not all of them, but a majority of them are going to act more responsibly than if there are no consequences for making bad decisions. So when people do this thing where they basically use abortion as birth control, they just use it to be unpregnant, well, that's taking a responsibility away from them. There are no consequences to their actions, and that's part of the reason that people feel more at liberty to make very bad decisions for themselves. And normally what happens when we're talking about an abortion, when we're talking about women having children out of wedlock, normally it happens more than once. Not always, but it's pretty rare for a 
it's we were talking about this with Lori Hughes in an interview I did just a couple of months ago that usually what happens is these mothers that are first time mothers, they wind up getting pregnant again, again out of wedlock. That's the normal course of events. And so there does need to be a set of consequences for that. That's not the primary reason that I'm opposed to abortion, but it is a tangential advantage that people have to learn from their mistakes. Now, a lack of education could sometimes be the cause. And I understand that, but it's usually moral failure. More often than not, it is a problem where values were not instilled to them and they did not live out those values. And that's not something a government can fix. That's not something a government program can help somebody be a more moral person. That's just not a thing a government can do. Churches can do that. Parents can do that. Friends can do that. There's a myriad of different things. A, a civil society even can do that to a certain extent. Government programs cannot teach people to be good or morally right. And furthermore, I wouldn't want them charged with that even if they could. But the thing is, this is a issue that goes back to a common Democrat mindset. That people are basically just cattle. They just kind of act. Their whole life is not really their own choices. It's all just reactions to stimuli. That's why when certain people riot in the streets, for example, they can just kind of say, well, you know, that's kind of what we expect because they are angry and have a right to be angry. And so because of that, this is just the normal response to the stimuli of seeing something that they feel is unjust. Okay, but they're still making the decision to do that. Or when there is somebody who steals and, and they're in a bad neighborhood, they're like, well, look at their home life. They couldn't help that. They, they're stealing. If we just gave everybody a whole bunch of money and eliminated poverty, there would be no more theft. Well, well no, there's white collar crime too. There, there's people that are insanely rich that still steal from other people. The idea that they can eliminate any kind of bad actors by just throwing money at a problem simply doesn't work. There are always going to be people that make poor decisions. People are not just automatons that are just reacting to stimuli and they, they lose all their autonomy and don't make their own decisions. And this is unfortunately the mindset that Doug Jones seems to think that people are in, that they just, if we just threw out the right education program and gave them the right amount of welfare and, and took care of them, they wouldn't make bad decisions. No, people are going to make bad decisions. They always have, they always will. I understand that. That's a part of human nature. But at the same time, they do have the ability to make their own choices. And so this isn't just something that, well, it's the circumstances of their life that led them to this. Well, it might be a contributing factor, but at the end of the day, they, cho they chose to make bad decisions. And then he also delves in a little bit here at the end to gun rights. So pretty straightforward question by the Montgomery Advertiser, to their credit. They ask, do Americans have a right to own a gun? Jones responds, Yes, the right to bear arms is enshrined in our Constitution in the Second Amendment. But just as Justice Scalia observed in the Heller decision, which recognized the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment, like all other constitutional rights, it has limitations based on public safety. Many of those limitations have been law for about 50 years. I am a proud gun owner, hunter, and sportsman. While there are certain common-sense steps we can take to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people who would inflict violence in our communities, I fully support the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding Americans. 
I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want someone to vote against my right to bear arms and take my guns away. I have also worked hard in the Senate to keep our hunting traditions alive, especially as it relates to stopping the spread of chronic wasting disease, which threatens our country's deer population. I've passed bipartisan legislation to help get more resources to hunters and wildlife management agencies and to expand research needed to stop the spread of this disease. Yeah, here's the thing. If you are so absolutely convinced that the Second Amendment is an absolute right, then why is it the very first thing that you did as a senator, your, your maiden voyage of a speech from the well of the Senate, was basically all of the restrictions that you want to put on guns. When he talks about these common sense measures, you can actually, you, you don't have to guess at it, you don't have to you know, make some kind of assumption, you can just watch and he lays out the kinds of things that he is in favor of in the very first thing that he did as a senator in the United States Senate. You can watch that now. We also need to get past the idea that more guns in society will make us all safer. The statistics and the data simply do not support that. We don't need guns in the hands of school teachers. Simply having more good guys with guns is not the solution. Americans just simply do not want to return to the days of the Wild West. But frankly, we have to do more on background checks. We have to require background checks on all gun sales, whether it is at a gun show or over the internet or between individuals. We should close the so-called Charleston loophole as proposed by Senator Blumenthal. This loophole allows a purchaser to receive a firearm after three days, regardless of whether their background check had been completed or not. We can create certain exceptions for concealed carry permits and holders and others, but no one should be allowed to take possession of a firearm until they have cleared a background check. Current law prohibits a firearms dealer from selling a pistol to anyone under the age of 21. That has been the law for many years without any real challenge. The same logic behind this prohibition should apply to the sales of pistols and semi-automatic weapons to those under the age of 21. We can do more to stop mental health issues from turning dangerous by allowing enforcement or family members to seek a court order when an individual poses an extreme danger to themselves or others or prevent them from getting access to firearms. If Senator Jones really believes that the right to keep and bear arms is an absolute right, do teachers just not have rights? If you're a school teacher, you just that one just kind of goes away for you. Are, are there any other rights that teachers don't have? Do they not have the right to be, for example, secure in their papers? Uh, can their house just be searched at random because they're high school teachers? Uh, do they have a right to religion or free speech or any of that? Do you think that one should be taken away? See, if it's such an absolute right, if you believe that it is an inalienable right, which our founders believed, why is it that's a right you just have to give up if you're a school teacher? That one I do not understand. And another thing, when he talks about raising the age for purchasing a rifle to 21, uh, is it just not a right for 18 to 21 year olds? So if you're 18, 19, or 20, you just don't get that right. 
I mean, you can vote and you can do everything else. You can serve in the army, which uh, last time I checked still uses guns. I don't know. Uh, maybe they've moved to fishing pikes or something, you know, back like in the Revolutionary War. I'm pretty sure they're allowed to use guns. Why is it that a 18, 19, 20-year-old can't? What if what you're talking about in the last question about somebody that had a baby out of wedlock and is going through immense poverty, what if it's a 19-year-old mom that lives in a rough part of the neighborhood and, you know, wants to stave off any would-be robbers or rapists or people that could hurt their children? Just sorry out of luck for her? Is that how it works? Why do they not have the right to protect themselves with a firearm? Should we raise the voting age? Because if we can't trust a 20 or a 19 year old to have a firearm, why should we treat them? Why should we trust them to vote? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. We can't trust them with a firearm, but we can trust them with deciding the course of the free world. That's something that we're okay with, with giving them the power to do, but not having a gun. None of this makes any sense. Furthermore, is it okay for a person's rights to be violated if the government can't get their crap together in three days? See, the reason that that law that he's talking about is put into place, the reason that that law is there that says, if we can't complete the background check in three days, then we have to give you the gun regardless. Do you know why that's there? Because the people that wrote that law knew and understood that if there was no limit on it, then all the Democrats would have to do is severely underfund and make the background check system, the NICS, all they would have to do is make that completely dysfunctional and, oh, we're doing your background check, you've never actually had a, a crime or any kind of, of violent thing, nothing more than a speeding ticket your entire life, but yeah, it's going to take us a couple years to finish your background check. See, they knew that Democrats, especially ones that want to disarm the American population, could play games like that. That's why the three-day rule is there. Now, normally, that background check takes literally less than five minutes. It usually doesn't even take that long. I've been through a couple of them myself when I purchased firearms, and I can tell you that it's kind of a pain to wait for it, but you're usually only waiting a minute to two minutes and all it does is, I mean, we freaking have the internet now. It's not 1968. We can plug somebody's name into a computer, and then it comes back to us and tells us, no, they're, they're clean, they can have a gun. And by the way, I'm in favor of laws that keep felons and violent offenders from having guns. And I'm also in favor of measures that have been taken right here in the state of Alabama to help us get better at that background check system to make sure that there is good information in it, which unfortunately there hasn't always been. I don't want violent people to have firearms. That's a thing that I am vehemently against. But the reason that rule is there is so Democrats like Doug Jones can't play games with this thing and say, well, yeah, we're, we're just, it's going to take us a few months to get your background check done. There was a very anti- gun sheriff, for example, in Lee County. I'm pretty sure he's not the sheriff there anymore. But back in Lee County, I remember, because this was back when I was going to Auburn, there was a sheriff that he extended the background check for getting a concealed uh, carry permit. He extended it to 30 days. Now, he could have done the background check in five days, but he extended it to 30 days for no reason other than he was not a pro-gun kind of guy. And I remember him actually bragging about this in a meeting that I was covering back when I was working for the Opelika Observer. 
I was in attendance and he was just bragging about this. And there was a reporter that beat me to the punch that was asking, so has there been any sign that this has helped prevent any crimes, helped save any lives? And he had to admit, well, no. So he was bragging about this policy. He's like, yeah, we, we made it one of the longest ones in Alabama that it's taking, we could do it in just like two minutes, but we expanded the background check process to 30 days. Now, there's no evidence that it's actually saved anybody. There's no evidence that it's actually brought crime down or anything like that, but we expanded it just, you know, for the heck of it. And so politicians, because they have an agenda, will cripple the NIC system, hoping that it keeps people from getting guns if that rule is not in place. And so that's the reason that that is there. Furthermore, if you do believe that it's a right, is there any other right that you have to beg permission for and then wait three days to get it? Like, I don't have to, when it comes to this show, for example, since we're talking about, say, free speech, I don't have to record the show and then send it to the government and get approval for the show. And then after three days of waiting after that decision, then I get to put it up on YouTube and Facebook and all the other venues that I'm at. That's not a thing that has to happen because we have free speech in this country. I can go on live, not this show, but other shows when my computer's actually working. I can go on live and just say whatever I want right then and there. I have the right to do that. I have the right to air it on News Radio 1440. I have the right to just walk out into the street and say whatever I want. If you believe it's an inherent right, that there is a natural, inborn, God given right, you don't believe that there are all these long, laundry list of restrictions on all of these things. And that's what Doug Jones is suggesting here for the right to keep and bear arms. And what other right is subject to just having it snatched away at the slightest sign of bad behavior? As I just said, I'm very much in favor of violent offenders, violent felons, that kind of thing, not having guns. They shouldn't have them. I'm okay with the background check system. I'm okay with those people being denied having guns, but to my knowledge, there's not another one that can just be snatched away by due process. What he was talking about there where somebody can just, in your family, suspect that you might hurt yourself with a gun, and they could go to the authorities and have your guns taken away, and then we'll evaluate and see if they can get your guns back to you. Uh, no, that's not how it works. It's not as though one of my family members, let's say that I've got a liberal family member, which by the way I do, and they don't agree with what I'm saying when it comes to the First Amendment. Does that mean that the government can just shut me down and take a few days to investigate, and then after they've looked into it, they can decide whether or not it's okay for me to have my free speech back? That's not the way that rights work. Let's say that you were a person that was completely peaceful, never hurt anybody, never had any intention of hurting yourself or anybody else, no signs, signs of suicide or anything like that. But you just happen to have a family member that's really liberal and doesn't like the fact that you've got a bunch of guns and then just out of spite because you took them off one day, they could report you and say, I think he's going to hurt himself. I think he might become a mass shooter. Well, then the police could go in under Doug Jones rules and just take your guns away from you without due process. And then the due process happens after they've taken your right away from you to see if they will, by their own good graces, give your rights back to you. That's not how this works. If it's an inalienable God-given right, you don't have the right to take it away from me unless you have a really, really good reason and can prove 
that I have done something wrong. That's the way that it is supposed to work. And when he says universal background checks, when he says universal background checks, that is just a proxy for creating a national register. It always has been, because a universal background check system won't work unless you know where all the guns are to begin with. So if you were to track anything, for example, if you were to track, you know, Nintendo Switches, the only way you could tell whether or not somebody had sold their Nintendo Switch to somebody else is if you knew where all the Switches were to begin with. If you take the emotional uh, hesitancy to talk about this when it comes to the left, when it comes to guns, if you make it literally anything else, it makes sense. Oh yeah, you'd, you'd have to have some kind of register of where all of those things are in order to trace them to see if somebody had sold them to somebody else or not. But the National Registry completely negates the purpose of the Second Amendment. The whole reason that we have a Second Amendment is to use it against the government. Remember that when the Nazis came in, one of the first things they did was register guns. And why did they register guns? So that when it came time to disarm the population and take over the country, they knew where all the guns were. You don't want to jump into a Jew's house when he might have a shotgun waiting for you. So they registered the guns, and then after some time, they went and took all the guns from the people that were not trustworthy, like the Jews, and then it was really easy to just shove them into a car and ship them off to Auschwitz. Yes, that's a horrible and extreme example, but that's how this happens. It doesn't happen with the snap of a finger. They don't tell you up front that that is the end goal, and many of them it's probably not. They probably never have any intention of taking it that far. But that's where it eventually goes. That's why the Second Amendment is there, so that doesn't happen. It's very difficult to be a tyrant over an armed populace. And that's the reason that enshrined in our Constitution, the second most important right is the right to keep and bear arms. Apparently it's one that Doug Jones doesn't believe is a right because he wants this gigantic laundry list of restrictions on it. Is there any other right that Doug Jones thinks that there should be all these different laws restricting who is allowed to have the right and who isn't? I mean, it's a simple question, but Doug Jones can pay lip service of the Second Amendment all he wants. He can pretend that he cares deeply about this and, oh, I'm a hunter and I'm a sportsman and I shoot guns and all this stuff. Yeah, well, even if you do, and I'm not saying that you don't, you're obviously not treating the Second Amendment as though it is a God-given natural right, which the Declaration of Independence and then later enshrined in the Second Amendment of the Constitution ensures that all people in the United States of America have. Ultimately, what this boils down to is, this is the way that Jones operates. Always is. Whether we're talking about guns, whether we're talking about abortion, he's one of the most two-faced individuals that I've ever met. Probably, if we're talking about politicians, he's second only to Martha Roby. I think that Martha Roby is the only person that I know of that is more two-faced and, and more abundantly clear that she's a flip-flopper than Doug Jones. Because I've seen Doug Jones' ads that he runs when he's fundraising in California and Texas and New York and trying to get people to give him money so that he can continue to be a Democrat in the reddest state in the country. I've seen those ads. I've seen the way he appeals to them. And the way that he does is he name drops a lot of big, important Democrats, people like Chuck Schumer, people like Kamala Harris, people like Nancy Pelosi, 
And whenever he's going to get money from them, he campaigns on how liberal he is. When he's talking to a newspaper in the state of Alabama, he talks about how moderate and how conservative he actually is. Yeah, I'm a Democrat, but look, I'm very much for guns and I'm against late-term abortions. It's the exact opposite of what he tells people when he's going out and saying, look, if you give me money, then I'm going to continue to push the liberal agenda. So what does that mean? It means you can't go on what he's saying. Ignore what he's saying, Look at what he does. He has an abysmal voting record. Yes, he's better than Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, but again, that's a super low bar to clear. Don't look at what Doug Jones is saying. Look at what he actually does. When he says, I'm just for common sense gun control, but I'm very pro-Second Amendment, but he wants all the crazy liberal stuff that every liberal, with the exception of maybe a few that are even further to the left, want then he's not a pro-Second Amendment guy. He's just not. When you get a D rating from the NRA, you're not pro-Second Amendment. I'm sorry, it's just the truth. Of course, Doug Jones is welcome on my show anytime to refute any of this, and we'll have an adult conversation if he wants to do that, but so far he's not taken me up on that offer. Doesn't much matter, though, because in just a few weeks, you will be voted out, and... About the same time, what is that? I said 116 days. Well, it's less than that now because, you know, that was when Judge Barrett was nominated. So in less than 100 days now, Senator Doug Jones will no longer be the senator from Alabama. Tommy Tuberville was by no means my first choice. And he's going to have a learning curve when he gets there. But uh, dead gummit, it's going to be a vast, vast improvement over abortion Jones. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a second on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Hey everyone, I'm going to be honest with you. I've had a really, really crappy day. My Auburn Tigers lost to the Gamecocks of all things and now we're 2-2. Two and two. Then my Braves lost to the Dodgers of all people even though they could have gone to the World Series today, and now they're going to be forced into a Game 7. And on top of all of that, I wound up getting a ticket for $190, completely canceling out the $150 I got for doing a wedding today. So it's just been a terrible day all the way around. But the thing is, as bad as this day has been, there is something that helps me out with it. InsomniaCookies.com. That's right, InsomniaCookies.com. You can go to any of their physical locations, which are in Birmingham or Tuscaloosa or Mobile or Auburn. You can go there and you can get something directly from them, or you can go to their website and get one of these fancy boxes at InsomniaCookies.com. And here's the thing. This is my little secret on this. My favorite dessert is not cookies. My favorite dessert is brownies. And it turns out that Insomnia Cookies, even though I only requested they send me a box of cookies, also sent me brownies. I didn't even know they made brownies. Somebody there must be a mind reader because I asked for a box of cookies and it's like they knew that I would enjoy the brownies. And so, never had one of these before, never had an Insomnia Cookie brownie. This is uh, the first test. And um, they do always recommend 
that you put all of their cookies when you get them out of the box. They recommend that you put them in the microwave. The brownie takes a little bit longer, so you might want to leave it in there for like 20, 30 seconds. They recommend 10 for the cookies, but here it goes. First taste test of the Insomnia Cookie Brownies. That is actually really good. This has uh, chocolate chips in it, and so you get the consistency of a brownie. You get that, that really sort of crumbly, moist thing going on, but you also have the chocolate chip. And, and by the way, uh, that is quite a compliment because especially a boxed brownie like this, one that arrives in the mail, it's really hard to get that moist consistency, but um, you pop it in the microwave or in the oven for just a few seconds, and you really do get that moist, like straight out of the oven brownie taste. Oh yeah, it tastes like, it really does taste like I just made a batch of brownies and cut them, well actually better than that because to be honest, I'm I'm not much of a baker. I can cook, but I'm not much of a baker. Like a lot of bachelors, that's just not my forte. And so this is a fantastic, fantastic brownie. And uh, I didn't have to make it into somebody that's a single guy. You know, if I make a pan of brownies, that would they're probably gonna spoil before I could eat them all because it would make like 20 something brownies this way. I get a brownie, I get a single serve, I can just buy one, two, three at a time, and they don't go bad, and, and I can eat them, and it's like enjoying a brownie fresh out of the oven. So, man, that is a really good brownie. Mm, fantastic. So, check them out at insomniacookies.com. That is insomniacookies.com. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and News Radio 1440.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. Be sure to give us a like and subscribe because that does help us fight the dark overlords at YouTube and help us get somewhere on the algorithm to where, you know, it's an uphill battle, but hopefully they know that you love us. So help us out with that. Now, this next segment, I know that it's old news. I know that it has... The time for talking about that this has really come and gone. I understand that. But here's the thing. First of all, I spent a lot of time researching this, and so I'd hate to waste all of that. So it is at least partially selfish on my part. But the other part of this that I want to cover is from the Kamala Harris and Mike Pence debate. And the reason that I want to bring that up, especially with the presidential debate looming on the horizon is for a couple of reasons. First of all, Kamala Harris is much better at articulating positions than Joe Biden is, mostly through no fault of Joe Biden's own. He's just not as good a communicator as Kamala Harris. And uh, Kamala Harris isn't likable, but she does say things clearly. You can understand what she is saying. And the fact that she's not 175 years old probably helps with that. Not the only factor, but you know, definitely helps with that. And so Kamala Harris does a pretty good job of articulating the actual position of what a Biden administration would look like. That's one reason that I think it's still relevant to talk about these things with the election still looming not far away from us. But the other part of that is, let's be honest, there's a really, really good chance that Kamala Harris, if Joe Biden does win, is going to be our president at least for some time. And I know that is a horrifying thought to think about, and believe you me, it worries me too. But, 
To be fair, I think that's probably what is going to happen, or at least there is a high probability of that, and so either way, we need to be prepared for this. And I think she was mostly articulating the Biden administration or the Biden campaign's official positions on things more than her own, but nonetheless, familiarizing ourselves with positions, that is something that is going to be helpful in making these kinds of decisions. First of all, on the overall debate, I don't think it was even close. Remember that the way that I get, got into all of this in the first place is that I am a gold emblem debate champion. I did, went through the Parley Pro contest in FFA. I wound up with a gold emblem. We're not sure exactly of our ranking because there's two separate flights, but we came no further back than sixth place in the entire country. And believe me, when a bunch of your judges are a bunch of Midwesterners and you're from Alabama and sound like me, that's not an easy task to pull off. <laughs> but nonetheless, debate is kind of my forte. And I try to be as objective about these things as possible. I thought that Joe, I was the only one on my panel of five that said that I thought Joe Biden won the last debate. And by the way, the polls reflected that. The polls don't always reflect who actually won the debate, but in this case, I think that they probably did. In this one, it was not even close. Mike Pence destroyed Kamala Harris in every conceivable way. And that is even more evident when you start digging into the claims that both of these people made. And so there's no way to go over all of it. They spoke for, what, an hour and a half? There'd be absolutely no way for me to go over all of this. So what I'm going to do is, since I don't have time to parse through every single lie that Kamala Harris said, or at the very least something completely misleading, we're going to go over tonight the top five Kamala Harris lies. Number five. So the first big lie that Kamala Harris utters is going to be about taxation and spending. On the other hand, you have Donald Trump, who measures the strength of the economy based on how rich people are doing which is why he passed a tax bill benefiting the top 1% and the biggest corporations of America, leading to a $2 trillion deficit that the American people are going to have to pay for. On day one, Joe Biden will repeal that tax bill. He'll get rid of it. And what he'll do with the money is invest it in the American people. That's how Joe Biden thinks about the economy, which is it's about investing in the people of our country as opposed to passing a tax bill which had the benefit of letting American corporations go offshore to do their business. So there's a lot to dig through in this particular lie. First of all, one of the things that she says that is completely misleading is she said that, well, these tax cuts benefit the rich more. Okay, well, they technically do, but it was an across-the-board tax cut. See, the way that she phrases her response there is she makes it sound like these were tax cuts for the rich, but it's simply not true. It was an across-the-board tax cut. Did wealthy people see a larger tax cut than people that were not so wealthy? Yeah, they did, but that's because they were paying more to begin with. So if you were, for example, the manager of a nice steakhouse, and you go out and say, all right, everybody, 10% across the board, I'm giving everybody a 10% discount on dinner tonight. The guy that is getting the premium steak, like the most expensive thing on the menu, is he seeing more advantage of that? Is he getting, is he saving more money than the guy that's buying the salad? Yeah, 
but the guy who's buying the salad is still spending less. So yes, there is a larger benefit in theory based on the way that you look at it when it came to Donald Trump's tax cuts because it amounted in what was virtually, not exactly, but pretty close to a 2% tax cut across the board. So yeah, rich people saw a little bit more of that money, but everybody got virtually the same percentage of their tax burden cut. And another thing, too, it's hilarious that she, at the end of that, crows about the deficit, how bad it is, that it's unconscionable that Donald Trump would allow there to be a $2 trillion deficit. Oh, the woe and lamentation over that. And believe me, as somebody who is a fiscal conservative, that bothers me, too. This is a thing that a lot of politicians, not just Democrats, Republicans do it too, don't get me wrong, that they do where they act like they're some kind of innocent bystander that had nothing to do with the current state of things. Senator Harris is a senator. She votes on those budgets. Yes, they do wind up on the president's desk at some point, but she also votes on the bill. Now, she's probably voted against some of them, voted for some of them, but when it comes to spending, Senator Harris votes in favor of virtually every spending measure that shows up in front of the Senate. And so it's kind of weird for her, a sitting senator who votes for all the spending measures to complain about how bad the deficit is. That when Senator Harris was a candidate for president herself, that her spending bill would have been $4.162 trillion in new spending per year. She is the only Democrat candidate whose spending measures were larger than Bernie Sanders. Think about that. Bernie Sanders, an avowed socialist, was second in that race when it came to spending proposals. Kamala Harris outpaced him. That's astounding. And she's the one that wants to talk about how bad deficits are? Really? Furthermore, let's actually look at the Biden plan. So you can see here, this is from the Tax Foundation. Biden's plan would raise tax revenue by $3.05 trillion over the next decade on a conventional basis. When accounting for macroeconomics feedback effects, so in other words, what they're talking about there is the side effects that would have by increasing the tax burden, people trying to evade taxes, people moving overseas, that kind of thing, the plan would collect about $2.65 trillion in the next decade. This is lower than we originally estimated due to the revenue effects of the coronavirus pandemic and the economic downturn and new tax credit proposals introduced by the Biden campaign. According to the Tax Foundation's general equilibrium model, the Biden tax plan would reduce GDP by 1.4% over the long term. On a conventional basis, the Biden tax plan by 2030 would lead to about 6.5% less after-tax income for the top 1% of taxpayers and about a 1.7% decline in after-tax income for all taxpayers on average. In other words, according to the Tax Foundation's research, not just rich people, not just the 1%, are going to see a reduction in the amount of money that they are taking home. So you are going to necessarily see, under Biden's tax plan, less of your own money. Whether you love Trump or hate him, regardless of your politics on this, you have to admit that you saw more money in your paycheck after his tax plan went over. After that happened, 
people got to keep more of their money under Biden's plan, people would see less of their money. So these are the numbers under the Biden-Harris plan. It's going to cost $1.35 trillion in new spending. Now you subtract from that the $305 billion in new taxes, because remember, it was going to cost $3.05 billion in new taxes. That was how much was going to be collected over the next 10 years. So divide by 10, you get $305 billion in new taxes. So you subtract that from the cost in new spending, but then you add the $2 trillion that we currently have in the deficit. And you know what you're left with? $3.045 trillion in deficit. So right after Kamala Harris starts crowing about how horrible it is that there's all this deficit spending by President Trump, she is in the same breath talking about a plan and promoting a plan that would cause a 52% increase in deficit spending, even if you do factor in the new taxes that they are talking about loading, and even if you completely ignore all of the macroeconomic side effects of that. Because keep in mind, we're ignoring what the Tax Foundation said about how much it would actually collect. Even if you ignore and say there, there would be no effect on the economy, no business people, no private citizens would adjust their behavior in any way as a result of the new tax plan, even if you ignore all of those factors and give them the best possible scenario, they're still running a deficit that is 52% larger than President Trump's deficit. The math simply does not add up. Now, in that same clip, because there's a whole lot of lies to go over in that short little clip, Harris also claims that the Trump tax cuts actually sent jobs overseas. Now, first of all, this makes absolutely no common sense whatsoever. Trump reduced the corporate tax rate and reduced the personal tax rate. He reduced the corporate tax rate by a very wide margin. He took it from, what was it, like 39, if I'm not mistaken, all the way down to about 21, 22. And then he, through this tax plan, reduced the personal tax rate of every American by roughly 2-ish percent. Why would that send people overseas? How in any way would that send jobs overseas? If you're talking about less taxes, all that does is incentivize people keeping things here and manufacturing things here because they're seeing less of their profits go to the government. And you're also not factoring in the other side of the ledger that when people have 2% more income, what do they do with that income? Do they sit on it? No, they either spend it or they invest it. Even if they keep it in the bank, it's still gaining interest. And so there's a gain on that either way by the government not getting their hands on about 2% more of the average American's money. You're going to see economic benefit from that beyond just the raw numbers and the raw data. So of course, you're going to have people with more spending power who spend more money, which in turn creates even more American jobs. And so there's a ripple effect across this whole thing. This claim that she's saying that the tax cuts sent jobs overseas it doesn't make any sense on its head. Like, just looking at it doesn't make any sense. But then when you do the fact check, it still doesn't make any sense. That's why common sense is such a powerful weapon here, because normally it's right. And by the way, this was backed up not just by me. You don't have to take my word for it. Take the word of the Washington Post fact checker. Because Kamala Harris isn't the first person to make this claim. She was parroting a talking point from her new boss, Joe Biden. 
Now remember, this is the Washington Post fact checker fact checking the claim that Biden made that the Trump tax plan sent jobs overseas. Moreover, the law is believed to have broadly reduced incentives to invest overseas compared with the previous system. Even if it's possible a new loophole was created, many other loopholes were closed. Biden earns two Pinocchios, are equivalent of half true. The concerns he raises are worth paying attention to, but he cannot express them with such certainty. So there you have it, two Pinocchios. Even the Washington Post fact checker, which has been totally in the bag for President Biden, had to admit, yeah, this one wasn't true. So there's just simply no truth to this claim that the Trump tax plan sent things overseas. Doesn't mean that it's perfect. Doesn't mean there aren't things that were legitimate concerns. And some of the things that Washington Post mentions were like, okay, maybe we want to look at it. But it certainly is not proof or really even evidence that jobs in mass quantities were sent overseas. The exact opposite seems to be true. Even Washington Post had to say it looks like it actually decentivized sending jobs overseas. Vice President Pence just absolutely destroyed Kamala Harris on this one. Check it out. President Trump cut taxes across the board. Despite what uh, Senator Harris says, the average American family of four had $2,000 in savings in taxes. And with the rise in wages that occurred, most predominantly for blue-collar, hardworking Americans, the average household income for a family of four increased by $4,000 following President Trump's tax cuts. But America, you just heard Senator Harris tell you, on day one, Joe Biden's going to raise your taxes. Oh! Remarkable to think, Susan. I mean, now you heard her deny it, but she just said it. She just said that they were going to roll back the Trump tax cuts, and Pence comes back with, "Well, that would raise people's taxes." And she goes, "That's not what I said." No, that's absolutely what you said. She's asking you to ignore what you just heard come out of her own mouth. But this is what happens when your narrative does not fit reality. Joe Biden can say he's not going to raise taxes on anybody making more than $400,000, which, by the way, keep in mind, his former boss, President Barack Obama, also said something similar, although his limit was 200000 or 250000 a year. And then he totally did it anyway. But even if you ignore that little nugget of truth, he, can't, he is simultaneously saying things that cannot be true at the same time. You can either not raise taxes on people making over 400000 or you can repeal the Trump tax cuts, but that would do that. Ergo, those two things cannot be true at the same time. You can keep that promise and keep the Trump tax cuts in place, or you can take the Trump tax cuts away and break that promise, but you cannot do both of those things at the same time. It is just impossible to do. And by the way, again, you don't have to rely on me. Other people have fact-checked this, including Newsweek. So this is Newsweek. Remember, not exactly a bastion of conservative thought. This is the same people that were saying that Amy Coney Barrett was a member of the cult that inspired The Handmaid's Tale and then had to print a retraction just a couple of weeks ago. So not exactly a right-leaning news publication. They said this about whether or not the tax cuts, taking away the Trump tax cuts, would raise taxes on regular people. That's why I'm going to eliminate the Trump tax cuts. I'm going to eliminate those tax cuts, Biden said as Trump responded. That's okay. The verdict? True. Pence's claim 
that Biden said he would bring an end to the Trump tax cuts are true. However, this claim that Biden is going to raise your taxes likely depends on your income level. Again, they're, they're trying to capitulate. But if you remove those tax cuts, that would raise taxes on people. Now, you could theoretically make the argument, and I assume that they will, that they're going to repeal and replace by taking away the Trump tax cuts and then giving people another tax cut to keep income coming, uh, income for people that are making less than 400000 to keep their taxes from going up. Although I frankly very much doubt that they're going to do that, but either way, they would still have to raise your taxes at least for a little bit in that interim period. And so it is absolutely true what Mike Pence is saying here. Number four. All right, number four, and one of the more obvious lies on this list, is Kamala Harris just talking about the environment. Biden and Kamala Harris would put us back in the Paris Climate Accord. They'd impose the Green New Deal, which would crush American energy, would increase the energy costs of American families in their homes, and literally would crush American jobs. And President Trump and I believe that the progress that we have made in a cleaner environment has been happening precisely because we have a strong free market economy. You know, what's remarkable is the United States has reduced CO2 more than the countries that are still in the Paris Climate Accord, but we've done it through innovation, and we've done it through natural gas and fracking, which, Senator, the American people can go look at the record. I, I know Joe Biden says otherwise now, as you do, but the both of you repeatedly committed to abolishing fossil fuel and banning of fracking. And so by creating the kind of American innovation, we're actually steering toward a stronger and better environment. And the American people know that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact. That is a fact. And with regard to banning fracking, I just recommend that people look at the record. You yourself said repeatedly that you would ban fracking. You were the first Senate co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. And while Joe Biden denied the Green New Deal, Susan, thank you for pointing out the Green New Deal is on their campaign website. And as USA Today said, it's essentially the same plan as you co-sponsored with AOC when she submitted it in the Senate. Holy cow. Mike, Mike Pence is just fantastic at this. Dropping some truth bombs right on Kamala Harris's head. And the only response she has to say is, it's not true. It's a fact. It's a fact that that's not true. We're not going to ban fracking. Joe Biden is not going to ban fracking. It's a fact. Can't do anything to back it up. All Mike Pence is saying is, you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the record. Go look at their website. It says that they support the Green New Deal on there, that the Green New Deal is a crucial framework. So this is from the Biden campaign website. Biden believes the Green New Deal is a crucial framework for meeting the climate change challenges we face. And I love this next sentence. It powerfully captures two basic truths, which are the core of his plan. One, the United States urgently needs to embrace greater ambition on the epic scale to meet the scope of this challenge. What the heck does that mean? It needs to embrace greater ambition? What the heck does that mean? When Joe Biden was asked in the debate about the Green New Deal, he said, look, the Green New Deal is going to pay for itself. And then the moderator asked him, do you support the Green New Deal? And he goes, no, no. <laughs> it was hilarious because he's like, well, it'll pay for itself. Well, then why wouldn't you do it if it's going to pay for itself? No, 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 we're not going to, I don't support the Green New Deal. Okay, but your vice president was the first Senate co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. And again, 
I don't want you to take my word for it. Mike Pence isn't asking you to take his word for it. You can just look at what they have said about this, what they have said about fracking, what they have said about the green energy and banning fossil fuels and the Green New Deal in their own words. Are you ready to commit to the responsible phase-out of fossil fuel production as part of your yes. administration? Well, look, we got to go to zero emissions, man. Zero emissions, Zero emissions. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and we can. It's within our wheelhouse. And the answer is yes. Would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? No, it would be, we, would, we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either one of those either any fossil fuel. We must have and adopt a Green New Deal. On day one as president, I would re-enter us in the Paris Agreement. And I think it's critically important on day one that we end any fossil fuel leases on public lands. If they fail to act as president of the United States, I am prepared to get rid of the filibuster to pass a Green New Deal. We, we, are, we are going to get rid of fossil fuels. They, they want to do the same thing I want to do. They want to phase out fossil fuels, and we're going to phase out fossil fuels. That's why we have. That's why in our administration we wiped out no more, no more coal plants. I mean, that's pretty darn conclusive. You don't have to do a lot of guesswork to figure out what their position is on that. Kamala Harris going so far as to saying, "You know what? I will get rid of the filibuster if it means getting a green new deal. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care if it completely destroys tradition in the Senate." just completely going over the norms of how our government functions, I'm just going to, it's that important to me that I am okay with just completely eliminating the filibuster to get the Green New Deal. Number three. Number three, you probably saw this one coming. It's not because it's a lie that is new or something that surprised anyone. It's just because it gets used over and over again and they still refuse to accept the truth of it. It's Kamala Harris saying that Donald Trump has never denounced white supremacy, that he actually went out of his way to not denounce white supremacy. Where last week, the President of the United States took a debate stage in front of 70 million Americans and refused to condemn white supremacists. Not true. And not true. It wasn't like he didn't have a chance. He didn't do it, and then he doubled down. He, on the issue of Charlottesville, where people were peacefully protesting the need for racial justice, where a young woman was killed, and on the other side there were neo-Nazis carrying tiki torches, shouting racial epithets, anti-Semitic slurs, and Donald Trump, when asked about it, said there were fine people on both sides. Well, first of all, it is pretty rich hearing the Democrats talk about anti-Semitism when Kamala Harris has never denounced people like Louis Farrakhan or they refuse to censor Ilhan Omar for the anti-Semitic things that she said, people like Rashida Tlaib that literally have a map in their congressional office with Israel marked out and marked Palestine over it, but and supporting things like the BDS movement, that kind of thing. They're okay with that. But the second a whole bunch of white supremacists start talking about the Jews will not replace us, they denounce it, which they should, but they should also denounce the anti-Semitism on their side as well. So, you know, spare me the faux outrage over anti-Semitism from Kamala Harris, considering the people she allies herself with. But here's the thing. Here is a Snopes transcript of the very debate 
that Kamala Harris is talking about, you can read the transcript with me. I, again, I'm not asking you to take my word for it. Just look at the facts. So here it is, Chris Wallace addressing Trump. You have repeatedly criticized the vice president for not calling out Antifa and other left-wing extremist groups. Trump, that's right. Wallace, but you are willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups. Trump, sure. In what universe is that not denouncing white supremacy? He says, are you willing to condemn white supremacists and militia groups? And Trump says, sure. And then Wallace said, and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, I'm willing to do that, but... And then Wallace goes on, the point in all of that is, and you could even argue that he said it a third time because he, he says something similar to that a third time after that. But the point in all of this is that Trump absolutely, at the very least twice, condemned white supremacy in the very debate that Kamala Harris is saying he refused to condemn white supremacy. That's simply not true. Now, granted, because Trump and Wallace had already had quite a bit of contention and there was some crosstalk going on, it was difficult to hear, but he did say it in all the official transcripts. Trump says, there's the question. Chris Wallace says, are you willing to condemn white supremacy? Trump's response, sure. Now, he was actually a little bit too eager, a little bit too zealous. Think about this. He was in such a rush to condemn white supremacy that a lot of people didn't hear his answer or didn't understand what he was responding to. He was so fast to respond to it that it didn't seem that way to some people. But if you read the transcripts and read what was actually said, Trump denounced it at the very least twice. And it's not as though this is the first time that he has ever done this. He has denounced white supremacy over and over and over and over and over again. Now, let's actually look at the clip. Let's look at the press event that Kamala Harris was talking about where Trump said that it was very fine people in Charlottesville because all you have to do is add a little bit of context, about 30 seconds in either direction, and you will see him actually deny and denounce white supremacists in the very clip that Kamala Harris is talking about. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. So you know what? It's fine. You're changing history. You're changing culture. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. If you look, they were people protesting very quietly the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. Now, to be fair, Trump is not the best communicator, and he doesn't always articulate his position with complete clarity. I understand that. It's a legitimate criticism of him. His response to, by the way, that was like three or four days after Charlottesville. His initial response, he didn't condemn white supremacy, and that was a problem. He, that should have been the first thing that he said, but Looking at the clip in his response afterward, very clearly, he says, those people should be condemned completely. I'm not talking about neo-Nazis. I'm not talking about white supremacists because they should be condemned totally. That is a quote. You just saw it out of the president's own mouth. That when he says very fine people, he is specifically talking about the people that were just there to protest the taking down of Robert E. Lee's statue. That's the people he was talking about. 
He specifically said, I am not talking, I'm not calling the neo-Nazis or the white supremacists fine people. They should be condemned totally. But the media continues to creatively edit that and play that clip as though that's the only part of that speech, as though it's the only part of that that you need to know. And continue on with this lie that he was talking about white nationalists and neo-Nazis when he said that. They're completely gaslighting you on that, trying to convince you that the exact opposite of what actually happened, happened. And by the way, that's not the only time that President Trump has condemned white supremacy. He has done this over and over and over and over again. How many times do I have to reject? I've rejected David Duke, rejected David Duke. Uh, I've rejected the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. Now, I have been asked this question so many times. I have rejected it so many times. How many times do I have to reject or disavow? Let me ask you this question. What about the, David Duke is saying to his supporters and followers, vote for Donald Trump. White supremacists are saying, vote. do you want those votes? No, I don't want them and I don't want him to say it. What do you How think many of white supremacists, by the way? I don't like any group of hate. Hate groups are not for me. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence, it has no place in America. We must love each other, show affection for each other, and unite together in condemnation of hatred, bigotry, and violence. We must rediscover the bonds of love and loyalty that bring us together as Americans. Racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. Anti-Semitism and the widespread persecution of Jews represents one of the ugliest and darkest features of human history. The vile, hate-filled poison of anti-Semitism must be condemned and confronted everywhere and anywhere it appears. There must be no tolerance for anti-Semitism in America or for any form of religious or racial hatred or prejudice. With one unified voice, we condemn the historic evil of anti-Semitism and every other form of evil. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. As you can see, he has condemned white supremacy and racism over and over and over and over and over again, as far back as 2016, before he was even the president. And he's done it again and again and again. And yet the media continues with this narrative like he's never done it before. Uh, you saw this actually when they questioned his press secretary a couple days ago when they were asking, well, is he willing to condemn white supremacy? He's like, but he has. And she listed a, a big list of and just rattled off a whole bunch of times when he's condemned white supremacy. He's like, but, but is he willing to do it now? Well, well, I just did it. Like, but, but are you doing it now? I mean, it's, it's one of the most ridiculous things. It's like if Donald Trump doesn't spend every single moment of every single day, 24 hours a day condemning white supremacy, then he hasn't condemned white supremacy. No, he's done it over and over and over and over again. Number two. 
And number two on this list is a long, long list of Harris just straight up lying about the economy and the state of it. When we look at where this administration has been, there are estimates that by the end of the term of this administration, they will have lost more jobs than almost any other presidential administration. And the American people know what I'm talking about. You know. I, I think about 20-year-olds. You know, we have a 20-year-old, a 20-something-year-old, who are coming out of high school and college right now, and you're wondering, is there going to be a job there for me? We're looking at people who are trying to figure out how they're going to pay rent by the end of the month. Almost half of American renters are worried about whether they're going to be able to pay rent by the end of the month. This is where the economy is in America right now, and it is because of the catastrophe and the failure of leadership of this administration. First of all, it's blatantly unfair to attribute the losses because of coronavirus on President Trump. Second of all, what should he have done different? Because it's real easy to Monday morning quarterback and sit back in your chair and talk about how awful the guy who's operating in a once-in-a-century pandemic and how his economy is doing, especially when you compare it to other countries. Now, you look at other countries, America has been hit hard just like everywhere else. Well, most other places. There are a few places that have been barely hit at all, but they're typically like itty-bitty countries that might have a few thousand people in them. But when you're comparing America to other large European countries or South American countries, America's economic impact has actually been relatively minute. I mean, yeah, we, we've seen a setback, don't get me wrong, but if you're comparing it to other countries, it really hasn't been that bad on the economic scale. And also, Trump didn't cause the virus. Now, there are some economic policies that were put forward that you might could lay blame at his feet for, but another thing that you have to keep in mind, too, is he left it up primarily to the governors. And now they are the ones that are making a lot of these decisions on the economy. Take a look at this graphic from the University of New Hampshire. This is a map of the United States based on the economic impact of different states. Now, why they chose to use all blue on this, I don't know. It's really hard to see that gradient, but do you see the states that have been hit economically the hardest? Do you notice that? It tends to be the ones that had the harshest shutdown measures. California is still not really opened up again yet. You've got Oregon and Washington that are slightly better off than California and Nevada, but not by much. And then the really hard-hit areas are New York and Michigan, who all have famously harsh lockdown measures. To a great degree, Hawaii too. That one may not really be fair because Hawaii depends so heavily on tourism. And so the fact that this particular pandemic basically killed tourism for everyone and Hawaii is really economically struggling... Now, these are the states with the most jobs lost as a percentage, so this is adjusted for population. Therefore, we're comparing apples to apples. You can actually look at states based on their population and what percentage of jobs they had lost. Hawaii lost 16.8%. New York lost 12.8%. Massachusetts lost 11.3%. Michigan lost 10.5%. Vermont lost 10.2%. Alaska 10.1%, New Jersey, 9.9%, California, 9.8%, Delaware, 9.7%,
And finally, at number 10, Nevada with negative 9.6%. Let's look at the states that had the most restrictive shutdowns. Hawaii at number one. Now, granted, as I said before, it may not really be fair to compare Hawaii just because its economy is basically all tourism money. So that's kind of an outlier, but they did also have very restrictive shutdowns. California at number two, Massachusetts at number three, Maine at number four, New Jersey at number five, Colorado at number six, Arizona at number seven, Oregon at number eight, number nine is Pennsylvania, and finally, rounding out the list at ten, Vermont. Hmm. Seems like there's a lot of similarities between this list. What if we were to highlight all the ones that are on both lists? Huh. Wow, it seems like a lot of the states with a whole lot of jobs lost also had the most restrictive shutdowns. And by the way, if you were to expand this list to the top 20, those lists are almost identical. So you don't have Michigan or Delaware on the most restrictive shutdowns list, but they are in the top 20. By the way, the most restrictive shutdowns were managed by WalletHub. They were the source that I used to get this information. Now, let's look at the opposite. The states with the least jobs lost. First, you've got Idaho only losing 1.8, Mississippi losing 3.0, Utah losing 3.1, Indiana losing 3.9, Arizona losing 4.1, Arkansas losing 4.2, number seven, our home state of Alabama, losing only 4.4, so good on Alabama on that one, Nebraska losing 4.5, Oklahoma losing 4.7, and Georgia losing only 4.7, very close, basically a tie with Oklahoma, who only lost a little bit less than the state of Georgia. Now, let's also look at that same list, the same Wallet Hub list, for the least restrictive shutdowns. South Dakota, number one. Idaho, number two. Utah, number three. Oklahoma, number four. Iowa, number five. Wisconsin, number six. Wyoming, number seven, Missouri, number eight, North Dakota is at number nine, and rounding out the list at ten, the state of Arkansas. Looks like there's an awful lot of similarity between these lists as well. Not quite as much. We have one less similarity between the former list, but the point is, the states that tended to have the least restrictive shutdowns also tended to have the least amount of jobs lost. This is not a mistake. This is not a weird coincidence. This is the truth of the matter. When you mandated these shutdowns, a lot of these states that went really hard, really fast on shutdowns, and Alabama went way too far, but you know, not as far as some of the other states. When you do that, you are going to see a drop in business. And so the states that had the most restrictive shutdowns tended to also be the ones that saw the most economic impact in the reverse was also true. So blaming Trump for the economic impact of the virus doesn't make sense because most of those decisions were made on a state-by-state -state basis in the first place. One of the talking points, too, that Kamala Harris brought up that really chaps my hide is where she was talking about, but you're 20-something. They're worried whether or not they're even going to have a job. Uh, I was a 20-something throughout the entirety of the Obama years where Joe Biden was the vice president. 
And it was not good for the 20-somethings. There were a whole lot of us that were wondering whether or not we could make rent or find a job in that era because of how horrible the economy was for just about the entirety of Obama's tenure in office. So this is youth unemployment, and this is done courtesy of the Wall Street Journal. Let's take a look at the Obama years. That's the Obama presidency. Now, granted, you do see a decline after about 2010, 2011, but it's a pretty slow decline, and it's basically just getting back to close to where it was when he started out. And so the Obama years were horrible for youth unemployment. We didn't see a big spike in that until about the time he wound up taking office, a little bit before then, but not much. And you can see especially that really big light blue line at the top, that's the youth unemployment. Those are the ones that are 16 to 19, and then the rest are 16 to 24, and then 20 to 24. And remember, I was in these age demographics when Obama was president. I remember going through all of this. And unlike the coronavirus, this wasn't some weird happenstance that could be explained away or that Obama couldn't control. There was a lot of resources going around. It, there was very much a possibility for a rebound, but Obama's policies specifically inhibited a lot of this youth employment from going down to where it should have been from the beginning. Headline from CBS's Market Watch. Business eliminated hundreds of thousands of full-time jobs to avoid Obamacare mandate. Up to 250,000 positions may have been eliminated by small businesses seeking to avoid Obamacare's employer mandate, according to estimates in the new working paper distributed by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Altogether, between 28,000 and 50,000 businesses appear to have reduced their numbers of full-time employees from 2014 to 2016 because of the mandate. The share of businesses with fewer than 50 employees grew between 2012 and 2016 to 45% from 37%. What you're seeing there is a dramatic increase in the number of businesses that had less than 50 employees. Businesses were intentionally reducing the number of employees so that they could avoid the penalties of the Obamacare mandate, and that is significant because there were people known as 49ers, people that were keeping their businesses under 50 so that they would not have to comply with the Obamacare mandate, which meant that it became so expensive to hire that 50th employee that most companies deemed it easier to figure out a way to get by with 49 as opposed to hiring 50 full-time employees. It stifled business growth and it made jobs harder to find. And this was true of people across the board, but that was especially true for young people because let's say that you're running a company and you've got to choose between firing a few employees to be able to keep your company under that 49 threshold to be able to not have to comply with the Obamacare mandate. What are you going to do? Are you going to fire the guy that's in his mid-40s and has a family and has been with the company for 15 years and is really good at his job? Or are you going to fire the 20-year-old that's been there a couple of years? You're probably going to fire the 20-year-old. And that's not because you hate the 20-year-olds, not because you don't want them to have a, a work there, but this stopped businesses from investing in young people. Kamala Harris is trying to say that this is all President Trump's fault, and the reason it is is because of everything that's happened in the past few months. Well, there's been a once-in-a-century event 
that caused the economy to spiral out of control, and we're already seeing a lot of rebound. Now, it's not quite the V-shaped thing that the president, that President Trump is claiming that it is. It hasn't rebounded as fast as people would have liked it to, but it is on the mend, and we're having a pretty quick recovery. You see, that's the difference. I can point specifically to things that happened that explain why President Trump and, and the economy that he oversaw had some problems. With Obama, I can point specifically to policies that he made that even bear his name that caused problems and caused a slow economic recovery and caused people to hire less young people. That's the difference in these two things. Kamala Harris is looking at two things that are really just a, a happenstance and saying, well, that should be Trump's fault. I'm looking at things that I can actually point to specific examples of things Obama did that made it harder for people to hire young people, and somehow that's not credible. That's the difference in these two strategies, these two arguments that are being made here. And number one. And for the number one, the biggest Kamala Harris lie of the evening, and it was hard to narrow it down, but I finally went with packing the court. But your party is actually openly advocating adding seats to the Supreme Court, which has had nine seats for 150 years, if you don't get your way. This is a classic case of if you can't win by the rules, you're going to change the rules. Now, you've refused to answer the question. Joe Biden has refused to answer the question. So I think the American people would really like to know if Judge Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States, are you and Joe Biden, if somehow you win this election, going to Pack the Supreme Court to get your way. I'm so glad we went through a little history lesson. Let's do that a little more. In 1864... Well, I'd like you to answer the question. No, Mr. Yes. Vice President, I'm Please. speaking. Please. I'm speaking. Okay. Yeah. In 1864, one of the, I think, political heroes, certainly of the president, I, I assume of you also, Mr. Vice President, is Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln was up for re-election. And it was 27 days before the election. And a seat became open on the United States Supreme Court. Abraham Lincoln's party was in charge, not only of the White House, but the Senate. But Honest Abe said, it's not the right thing to do. The American people deserve to make the decision about who will be the next president of the United States. And then that person can select who will serve for a lifetime on the highest court of our land. So the reason that I picked this one as the number one lie is because it's a lie within a lie. It's like a lie hot dog. You've got one lie wrapped around another lie. It makes a, a lie sandwich of types. And, and we'll get into all of that. But first of all, before I even get into that, I want to point out, as I did right before we played the clip, isn't it kind of a big testament to the media's just rampant bias that Vice President Mike Pence had to ask this question as opposed to the moderator? that he's the one that had to bring it up. The second part of that is that none of that answered the question about packing courts. We can, we're going to dive into the merits of whether or not it was true or not in a second, but regardless of whether it, it even if it had been 100% true and the story about Abraham Lincoln had been 100% true, none of it is an answer to packing the court. So at the very least, it's a lie of omission because he's asking her a question, she answers a completely different question that has nothing to do with it, and then sits there and acts like she has answered the question, when clearly she has not. 
And it's like, well, we're, we're being very open about this, and we're openly saying that we're not going to answer the question. That's basically her answer. We've been very open about it. We've been very clear about it. And the clear thing that we want to communicate to everybody is we don't want people to know what our response is going to be. Well, that's not clearness and transparency. You can say a lot of those fancy buzzwords that people tend to resonate with, but that doesn't change the fact that you're not answering the question. This whole thing is just a bald-faced lie. There's no truth to the story she just gave. None whatsoever. The Senate was out of session when that Supreme Court seat became open when Abraham Lincoln was president. They weren't in session. The very first day, the first day that the Senate was in session, a nomination was announced. And he nominated and confirmed Judge Salmon Chase the day that they resumed. Let me restate that. He nominated and they confirmed the same day. So all this talk about how dishonest it is what the Republicans are doing, that President Trump nominates somebody and then they go through the confirmation process and they're saying, it's being rushed through. Uh, yeah, when Abraham Lincoln and his party were in charge of the Senate, he nominated somebody and then they got confirmed the very same day. So don't talk to me about how Amy Coney Barrett, who now for what, three weeks, we've been going through the confirmation process that that's being rushed through, but then say that honest Abe, man, he, he's the monolith. He is the example that we should all be looking to. The second part of that is that the motivation that Kamala Harris attributes to the reason that Abraham Lincoln refrained from nominating somebody is a complete bald-faced lie. There's simply no truth to it. She is inventing history out of thin air. And it would be one thing if we just had no evidence for it. It would still be a lie. She would still just be making crap up and pulling things out of her butt. But the thing is, it's not even that we just don't know why he held off on the nomination. And it's not even just that he held off until uh, announcing who his nominee would be up until the point that the Senate resumed session. We actually know his motivation from history. Now, this is from Lincoln's Cottage, and this particular article was published in 2013, long before the scenario with Amy Coney Barrett was raised. Read this. As ever, Lincoln was the shrewd politician in October of 1864. He saw no profit in alienating any of the factions of his political support by making a selection, talking about the Supreme Court, before the election. There is no evidence that he seriously considered announcing his choice before he was re-elected. Lincoln was not, however, above using the enticement of the office to encourage campaigning on his behalf. The highest prize was the regard of an act and active political support of Salmon P. Chase, the man that eventually became a justice. The former senator, governor, secretary of treasury, and presidential candidate and a towering figure in the country. In the apt analysis of historian David Donald, after Taney's death in October 1864, Chase took the cue and stumped for Lincoln throughout the Midwest, in marked contrast to his earlier maneuverings in 1864 to replace Lincoln as president. Of course, Chase's unusual behavior did not go unnoticed as rumors of a bargain surfaced. So it's not even that Kamala Harris is just making up history. We know from history the reason that President Lincoln did not go ahead and nominate a Supreme Court justice to go to the bench before the election because he wanted him to campaign for him. 
He specifically maneuvered it and sort of dropped hints that Chase is going to be the guy that I pick. And Chase took the cue and a guy who had not been campaigning for Lincoln at all beforehand suddenly became Lincoln's biggest supporter. Look, Abraham Lincoln didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything dishonest. But he was not above using the legitimate powers of the presidency to help encourage people to go out and vote for him. To encourage this guy to, yeah, go out and campaign for me. That was Lincoln's motivation. It had nothing to do with, well, it would be wrong for me as the duly elected president to nominate somebody so close to the election. That was never a factor in Lincoln's mind in making that decision. And so Kamala Harris is just a bald-faced liar. There's no gentler way to put it. And by the way, she continued to not answer the court-packing question over and over again. And so Joe and I are very clear. The American people are voting right now, and it should be their decision about who will serve on this most important body for a lifetime. Thank you, and, and Senator Harris. People, Susan, are voting right now. They'd like to know if you and Joe Biden are going to pack the Supreme Court if you don't get your way in this nomination. Let's talk about packing. You once Come again on. gave a non-answer. Joe Biden gave a non-answer. <laughs> trying to answer you the now. American people deserve a straight answer. And, and if you haven't figured it out yet, the straight answer is they are going to pack the Supreme Court. Supreme Court. Yeah, Thank let's you. talk about packing the court then. Let's talk about Please. the pack. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to. So the Trump-Pence administration has been, because I sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Susan, as you mentioned, and I've witnessed the appointments for lifetime appointments to the federal courts, district courts, courts of appeal. People who are purely ideological, people who have been reviewed by, by legal professional organizations and found to have been not competent are substandard. And do you know that of the 50 people who President Trump appointed to the Court of Appeals for lifetime appointments, not one is black? So she continues to give this non-answer. She refuses to answer the question over and over and over again. And then Pence jumps in because she refuses to answer the question. She says, well, I'm trying to answer. I'm trying to answer. And then he's like, okay, answer. And then she goes, uh, President Trump hates black people. Th that's the only response she had. It's the, the oldest trick in the Democrat playbook. When you've got absolutely nothing to talk about, when you have no leg to stand on, just accuse the other guy of being racist. That's the only arrow left in her quiver. And by the way, that too is an incredibly misleading lie because she's trying to suggest that President Trump would not be comfortable with or would not appoint a black person as a judge. But she parsed her words very carefully to where she wasn't technically saying anything that wasn't true, but it leaves out the larger context in the story. Because first of all, I mean, like in what universe does that answer the question of court packing? Obviously it doesn't. But the thing is, Trump has nominated 29, 29 non-white justices to the bench. Eight of them have been black, eight of them have been Hispanic, 12 of them have been Asian, and there was one other. I guess that person's a mixed race. I really don't know. I was just looking at the stats. But when it comes down to that, she said specifically just the ones on the appeals court. There are eight federal judges that were appointed by President Donald Trump that are black. Not that he feels as though they're incompetent or they can't do it or any of that stuff. This idea that 
Trump is some kind of wild racist that refuses to appoint black judges. No, he just hasn't happened to appoint one to the Court of Appeals. He's appointed them to other courts. And so it's just absurd, the thing that she's trying to say, to try to suggest that somehow President Trump is racist. She very carefully cherry-picks the information that she's trying to show. And by the way, she's just following the cues of her boss. This actually happened just this past weekend where President, or President nominee for the Democrats, Joe Biden, her boss, also refused to answer whether or not he would pack the courts. They'll know my opinion of court packing when the election is over. Now look, I know it's a great question, y'all, and I don't blame you for asking it. But you know, the moment I answer that question, the headline in every one of your papers will be about that. Other than, other than focusing on what's happening now. The election has begun. There's never been a court appointment once an election begun. What, four million or so people have already voted. They're denying the American people the one shot they have under constitutional law to be able to have their input. And that is picking the person who can name who they want me to lay out in detail what I'm going to do after that, if I'm the president. If I'm not the president, he gets to pick it. Thank you. Sir, I've got to ask you about packing the courts. And I know that sure. you said yesterday you aren't going to answer the question until after the election. Huh. But this is the number one thing that I've been asked about from viewers uh, in the past couple of days. Well, you've been asked by the viewers who are probably Republicans who don't want me continuing to talk about what they're doing to the court right now. Well, sir, don't the voters deserve to know? No, they don't. Deserve, I'm not going to play his game. He'd love me to talk about, and I've, I've already said something on, on court pack. He'd love that to be the discussion instead of what he's doing now. He's about, to, he's about to make a pick in the middle of an election, first time it's ever been done. First time in history it's ever been done. So a couple of things. First of all, there's nothing wrong or unconstitutional with what President Trump is trying to do, which we've already discussed ad nauseum. But even if there were, let, let's just say that what Trump was doing was very bad and very wrong and it was unconstitutional and all this other stuff. That doesn't justify you not answering the question. Bad behavior from one person does not justify bad behavior in another person. And I love how he's talking about, well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to take the focus off what they're doing and place the focus on whether or not I would pack the court. Yet, well, you know what the easiest way to take all of the focus off of that would be? Saying, no, I won't pack the court. That's it. It's a done deal. Stop asking about it. I'm not going to pack the court. You see, the problem with that is they are going to pack the court and they know, as Joe Biden just said, the headline in the paper tomorrow would be that Joe Biden's going to pack the court. So he's basically answering by not answering. Because if he had no intention of packing the court, the easiest way to end that discussion and put all the focus back on what's going on with the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation, all he would have to do is say, no, I'm not going to pack the court. That's a non-starter. Overall, just looking at Kamala Harris and Joe Biden's position, the idea that we have to elect you to learn your position is absolutely insane. It's just as insane as voting on a bill that you haven't read all the way through. You know, like Obamacare, that you just have to pass the bill to find out what is in it. That's not the way this is supposed to work. You're supposed to make an informed, intelligent decision on the choices that are laid out in front of you once you know what their policy positions are going to be. That's why elections work. If it were not that, then we could just pick somebody based on how cool their tie is. 
You see, knowing a candidate's positions are the way that you're supposed to decide between one or the other. And the thing is, when he says this has never been done before, yes, it has been done before. Yes, it has. 29 times. When, in recent history, when it was during an election year, that they, all of a sudden, there was an opening on the court, all 29 times, a president has nominated someone to replace someone in that open seat. This has been done by 22 different presidents over 29 times. Contrast these two. You have President Trump doing something that has been done 29 different times. And what Joe Biden is trying to make a, a nuanced point here where he's saying, well, it's never happened during an election. Uh, well, yeah, people have already cast their votes, but so what? First of all, he's still the duly elected president until Inauguration Day, regardless. I mean, he could nominate after the election and still be within his constitutional right. But the second part of that, and this is the, the more important part of it, actually, I would say it's the second most important part. I think the constitutionality is the, the part that matters most. But secondary, I guess, to that, you have President Trump, who this has happened 29 times in the history of our country, and he's doing exactly what all 22 of the presidents that have had openings on the Supreme Court do in election years. He's doing what they did. Joe Biden refuses to answer a question about maintaining an institution at nine seats that we have had for 150 years. So don't talk to me about President Trump breaking all of the norms and, you know, harming the trust in our institutions when Joe Biden is trying to pack the Supreme Court. The two big lessons that you could take away from these top five Kamala Harris lies, because I think this is a microcosm for why affirmative action is so incredibly stupid. Joe Biden hired Kamala Harris not because she was a good candidate, not because she knew what she was talking about, not because she did well in the Democrat primary. He hired her because she had the right genitals and the right skin color. That's it. And he said as much beforehand. Now, I'm not, because there are other black women that he could have hired, I'm sure. But ultimately, that was the primary consideration when he was hiring him. And that's not me saying that. He said that. He's saying it's going to be a woman of color. I'm going to pick a woman of color. I'm going to, and, and he knew it had to be a black person because of the sort of situation we find ourselves in now. And also because he said some racist things that he kind of wanted to prove to everybody that he wasn't anti-black. So that was part of the issue going forward with this. But it does show why affirmative action is so stupid. There are a plenty of other Democrats that are far more intelligent, that are far more likable, that could have been a much better vice president candidate. But the whole debate, it was abundantly obvious. She didn't get picked because of her ability. She didn't get picked because she's good at this stuff or knows what she's talking about. She got picked because she has the right genitals and the right skin color. And that's why affirmative action is dumb. The most qualified person didn't get the job. The person with the right number of intersectionality markers and labels got the job. And it's a great example of why that's an incredibly stupid practice. You should always hire the person that's actually best at the job they're being hired to do. And another thing that is a big lesson is if there was anybody that was on the fence or not sure whether or not mansplaining was a real thing, that should be gone now because they constantly said that President or Vice President Pence was mansplaining to Kamala Harris, if mansplaining means a man explaining things, then yes, he was mansplaining. 
But if it means in any way being unkind or impolite or talking down to someone, Kamala Harris spent way more time talking down to him. She actually spent more time interrupting him. And at the end of it, they tried to say, well, it was obvious that Vice President Pence was trying to run over her or not let her talk. And she just, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Okay. All right. Yeah. It turns out that when you count up all the time that they spent, uh, Kamala Harris had about three to four minutes more talking than he did. So if that's mansplaining, then the term mansplaining doesn't exist. It doesn't mean anything. If mansplaining isn't what a bunch of Democrats were doing to Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who know nothing about constitutional law, and Barrett just schooled them on the facts, and they were talking down to her, trying to explain things to her, even though she clearly knew way more about them. If that's not mansplaining, and what we just saw between Vice President Pence and Kamala Harris is mansplaining, then the term doesn't mean anything. Spoiler alert, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's a completely useless term people made up to try to get out of having an argument because the person that they are arguing with happens to be right, and the only thing they can think of to counter that is, well, you're a man, so that's the extent of the intellectual prowess they have, and so that's the argument that they tend to fall back on. But it is really sad that lies and personal attacks are basically the only thing that the Biden campaign has left to run on. Well, that and the fact that they also have a person with lady parts and black skin on the ticket. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Hey guys, here to tell you about one of our fantastic sponsors, insomniacookies.com. That's Insomnia Cookies and insomniacookies.com. They also have physical locations, so if you happen to be in Birmingham or Mobile or Tuscaloosa or Auburn, you can just go to their store and pick up one of their cookies fresh bake. If you happen to be like me, that they don't have one in Montgomery, they really need to bring one to Montgomery, but they haven't brought one to Montgomery yet, and so because of that, you have to order them from insomniacookies.com. You do that, I tell you what, you're going to get one of these fantastic boxes, like one of the ones that they sent me from insomniacookies.com. Dot com and they send them in these great little wrappers and you can just throw them in the microwave for about 10-15 seconds and then eat it straight out of the wrapper and the ones that I've tried this with it really does taste like a cookie fresh out of the oven. I don't know if it's just the way that they bake them or the ingredients or what but it comes out and I'm going to do something that's a, a really big challenge for me today because the thing is I like pretty much all cookies and I'm not going to turn any of them down. But if you were to ask me what my favorite cookie flavor is, Snickerdoodle, not one of my favorites. And so we're going to try the Snickerdoodle from InsomniaCookies.com and see if it measures up. Because if Insomnia Cookies can impress me with their Snickerdoodle, then uh, that's going to be a testament to how good they are at this. Because I'm, I'm just not a huge Snickerdoodle fan, but we'll see how it goes. Okay. You can tell the way they made the snickerdoodle, it's not like they made a regular sugar cookie and then sprinkled cinnamon sugar on top. There's there's obviously cinnamon sugar in the, the cookie dough itself because you can really taste it all the way throughout. That's a pretty good cookie. Now, just like other cookies, snickerdoodle's not my favorite, but believe me, I am not... Now, I'm in no way not enjoying this cookie. This is a good cookie. Not my favorite flavor, but 
This is probably the best snickerdoodle I've ever had. And I've had some from lots of different companies. I Look, guys, I, I just eat a lot of cookies. <laughs> Let's just be honest about that. Uh, even though it's not one of the ones that I usually pick, I've had lots of different kinds of snickerdoodles. Uh, I've had store-bought ones. I've had ones that you get in, like, bakeries and whatnot. Uh, I've tried some of even the local bakeries around here. This is probably the best snickerdoodle I've ever had. It's a little bit buttery. Like you, you can taste the butter in it. It's almost like... It's very similar to with the, the texture and the flavor, and especially if you heat it up and, and eat it hot. It very much reminds me of what a cinnamon bun tastes like if there's no icing on top. So if, if you take the icing off of a cinnamon bun, you're going to get something very, very similar to this snickerdoodle cookie. And one thing that I like about it is most snickerdoodles, they actually kind of overdo the cinnamon. Like that, they have it to where... If you were to take the cookie up and then turn it over like this to, to where it's on its side, you would just see like a, a rain <laughs> of cinnamon sugar falling off of it. This one's not like that. They definitely have extra cinnamon sugar that they put on top after they baked it because it's, it's in the cookie, but then it's also on the outside of the cookie. I, I think that they definitely added some afterward after they baked it, uh, but it's in both. And they don't like completely overdo it to where you feel like you, you need to take a shower because of all the cinnamon sugar you got on yourself with most snickerdoodles. Uh, but it, they, they don't sacrifice the flavor for that either. Like it's still got a very, very strong cinnamon sugar flavor. And uh, I think that's a testament to how well they did on this one. Again, not one of my favorite flavors. Uh, we're talking about peanut butter cup. We're talking about chocolate chip cookie. Oh, I'll, I'll run over somebody to get one of those. <laughs> Uh, but this is not one of my favorite flavors, and this is still probably the best version of a snickerdoodle cookie that I've ever had. So be sure to check them out, insomniacookies.com, if you want to order cookies just like this. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today, and we are going to be continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, the only thing you need to know to sort of understand what's going on here is that Samuel has already been anointed, and this takes place in 1 Samuel 18. So he's already been anointed, he has slain the giant, he's already soothed Saul's soul with his heart playing, and so he's basically in with the royal family now, and he's kind of well-known in Israel as being sort of a national hero and he has very close ties to Saul and his family as well. And so because of that, we go ahead and go to 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 5. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day, and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war 
and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of all of Saul's servants. So this is a pretty big deal for David because he is being treated as though he is a member of the royal family. David from a little backwater town of Bethlehem and somebody that spends pretty much all of his life just tending to his father's sheep out in the middle of nowhere, all of a sudden has become a national icon that is dining with and living with the, the royal family in the palace there in Israel. So this is a pretty big deal for David, and he is being treated like a member of the royal family, and, and that's how the royal family themselves are also treating him, like he is an actual family member. So we see that he lives there, he goes on missions, he wears their colors, he's wearing the prince's armor when he goes out to these different tasks that Saul sends him to. And remember that Saul and David were close before they were enemies. I think we forget that sometimes. We always think of Saul being the enemy of David, but they were friends at one point. Now, obviously, this isn't exactly the same kind of relationship, but it's sort of like how Lex Luthor and Clark Kent were friends before they became Lex and Superman. They were buddies. They were childhood friends. They spent a lot of time together. They really liked one another. And that's how Saul was with David for a long time. Saul treated David like another son. He treated him like Jonathan's brother. He loved him. He wanted him around to the point to where he said to his father, let me hang on to him for a little while. Uh, he wouldn't let him return to his father's home. He kept him there in the palace. That's how much affection Saul had for David. And he trusted him. He trusted him enough to send him out on missions to go and, and do that which Saul asked him to do. And so there is a very familiar, uh, familiar relationship between the two of them, one of mutual love and respect, and that did last for a while before suddenly they became enemies. Now, if you read just a few verses down, you'll see it doesn't last as long as you might think. But how long? A couple years, maybe? Was it four or five years that David was dwelling in Saul's house? Because every indication that we get when Saul's going on the run is that he's at least an older teenager, if not a fully grown man. And yet, this elapses all in the space of just a few verses. Maybe it was a lot longer period of time than the verses let on. It doesn't really say specifically. But when he slays the giant, it talks about him being a youth. And when he's running away from Saul it kind of alludes to the idea that David is a man by this point, and so it could have been a period of several years that he's there living in the palace, working with Saul, working with Jonathan, and that may have been quite an amount of time. They were close before they were enemies. But another thing I'd like to point out is, and I want to call attention to this because it's such an interesting piece of scripture and one that we don't really see all that often in the Old or the New Testament, is this idea of a covenant. There are only six covenants between God and man in the entire Bible. So a covenant is a really big deal. This is not a covenant between God and man. This is a covenant between Jonathan and David. So it's not as strong or not as significant as a covenant between man and God. But it is a covenant. This is something that is deeper than a promise. God makes a lot of decrees, and he makes a lot of promises. Making a covenant is rare. God doesn't do it very often. There are times where, for example, God would tell somebody that they have to do something, 
you know, where he would tell Jonah, you've got to get out there and go to Nineveh or say to a prophet, you need to go out and preach this to this king, that kind of thing. And he made promises a good amount of time, too. He promised Moses that he would get to at least see the promised land. He makes promises to Abraham that he would protect him, that kind of thing. That's not the same thing as a covenant. A covenant is deep. A covenant is God entering into some kind of spiritual permanent agreement with the person with whom he is making this covenant with. And it's the same word that is used for this relationship between Jonathan and David. They have promised themselves in a spiritual way to look after one another, to protect one another, to treat each other as brothers. And this is something that we'll see throughout the course of this story that they lived throughout their lives. It was something that was meaningful to them. There are some profound covenants in the scripture, but they're always intimate. The covenant of baptism, where we come in contact with Christ's blood. The covenant of circumcision, which was a sign from God that these are my people for all male Jews. And then there's the covenant of marriage, a linking of two souls under God, man and woman. Those are all things that are talked about in the scripture as being a covenant between human beings. And so there is a high, high level of intimacy between David and Jonathan. And that is what the scripture is trying to convey by talking about the covenant they had towards one another. That it is a kind of dedication and devotion to each other and to look out for one another. And that's the kind of covenant that the two of them enter into here. But remember that David keeps this covenant even after Jonathan dies. Years afterward, years afterward, after Jonathan's gone, and nobody would even remember or think poorly of David for not keeping his covenant, even after his friend has been dead for a number of years, David goes and seeks out members of Jonathan's family to show kindness to. Remember, this is at a time where when you were a king and you overthrew the previous king, you killed everybody related to the king, everybody that was friends with the king, you just wiped everybody out because you wanted to make sure there was no challenge to your throne. David, because of his love for Jonathan, does the opposite. He goes out and he looks for people that were relatives of Jonathan's, specifically his son in one case, to show kindness to, to take care of, and to look after. Their covenant was so strong that not even death broke it. That's a friend that you want to have, somebody that is willing to dedicate themselves to you to take care of you and even take care of those just because they happened to be close to you. And this is the kind of covenant, because remember, the covenant of baptism, the covenant of being saved, is something that Christ talks about quite, quite a bit, that he enters into a covenant with us when we have a relationship with him. We have that same high degree of intimacy and love that we promise ourselves to each other. And just like any other covenant, there are conditions. You see, Jesus promises himself to us. All his blood and sweat, everything that he did while he was on earth, the perfect life that he lived, his teachings, his testaments, the way that he loved and treated people, those are all things that are dedicated to us. And we have that high degree of intimacy with him as well, that he has promised all that he is to us and that we can share in part with his inheritance, the inheritance that comes with him living a perfect, sinless life. But we have a part to play in this as well. 
because we also are supposed to promise ourselves to him, that we dedicate our heart, our mind, our body, our soul, everything belongs to Jesus Christ, and that our actions are supposed to reflect that. And so if we want to have this level of intimacy, this degree of closeness that David and Jonathan had, we want to have that kind of covenant relationship that they had, that their soul was knit to one another, the only way to do that is to knit our soul to Jesus Christ. That we dedicate everything that we do, every word, every thought, every action, the way that we treat other people, to being more like Jesus, to do what Jesus would want us to do. And a person that is in a covenant with Jesus Christ, the outcome of that is eternal life. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.